We are finishing up our series today called ROI, and we've been looking at over the last month the idea that where you're investing your love is where you're investing your life, and, and what you're pouring into, you expect to get some return on that investment. Where you're pouring out your time, your money, your energy, you expect a return on that, and where you are pouring those things is really going to shape who you're becoming a year from now, five years, 20 years from now, your, your life kind of story is being told by the investments that you're making. And so just to recap really quickly, we started by saying God is worth investing in and that God has already invested in you. He made the first move of love towards you. And I said at the beginning of this series, there is no greater investment you can make in your life than to get into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If you're willing to do that and step up and, and, and really pursue him this year, that's going to change every other thing in your life. It's going to affect everything in your life. And so I, I think it's the biggest game changer is to get to know God, um, who, to get to know the God who's already invested in and loves you. And then after that, we said, look, you got investments in other people. We're called to servanthood. We talked about that in week two. We're, we're called to pour out our lives to serve other people. Jesus modeled that for us, and, and so we're called to do that as well. And then the next week, I said, look, you're... Uh, you're called to be an investment where, you, where you're to invest in other people in just in community, get to know people in the family, become friends, love one another, um, that, ki- that kind of idea that you're supposed to know and be known. Um, and that's, that's, we're designed to connect that way. God hardwired us to be in relationship like that. I mean, last week we looked at the idea of money and how we can take money, which is something we typically think of as an investment conversation. We said, look, how do you take money and not just spend it on yourself or whatever, but how do we, how do we invest money with an eternal perspective? How do, we, how do we pour out even that to honor and love God and, and to live out our faith even in the way we spend money? And today I want to look at one more sort of relational investment that we make with other people. And this one is not in the family of God, but how do you invest your faith into people who are outside of, of the church and who are outside of a relationship with God who are, not, who are not pursuing him? How do you pour out and share your faith with other people? That's an important question, especially for believers to ask, people who are following Jesus. Uh, and it's also a little bit tricky because for a lot of us, when I say, hey, you know, share your faith with other people, a lot of people sort of feel like in our culture, in our context, a lot of people are like, eh, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't, like, don't want to be a religious salesman. I, I don't want to shove my religion down other people's throats. I don't want to make people uncomfortable. I would rather just, you know, keep it to myself because my faith is like supposed to be a, 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 a private thing. And I understand why we have those, that reaction to it. Maybe we've seen faith shared rather poorly, whether it's online or, or in person. Um, but I don't think you have to sell to share your faith. I think it can be a lot more natural than that and, and, and a lot more simple. I, I do believe we're called to do it, but I, I think hopefully here in the next few minutes you'll get some ideas on, on maybe how you could do that simply and, and, and to do it well and to, to look at that I want to uh, look at the scripture. Jesus bursts onto the scene, sort of the religious scene in the first century. Uh, he had grown, been a carpenter for a lot of his adult life. And around 30 years old, he leaves his town of Nazareth, which is near the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. And he goes around the Sea of Galilee. There's a bunch of little towns around the sea there. And he starts preaching and teaching and talking to people about the kingdom of God and what it means to follow God. And, he, and, he, and he's healing people. He's doing all sorts of stuff, and he's pointing people to a relationship with their Heavenly Father. And John is one of the four gospel writers who write about the story of Jesus, about what he did, where he went, and and records that information for us. And John tells us about some of the very first encounters people had with Jesus. And I want to go to it in John chapter 1 because I want you to see 
how normal it was for people to share their faith and, and, and really what they said and how they did it. So John 1, we'll put it up on the screen here so you can follow along, or if you have a Bible, you can turn to that. John 1, we'll start with verse 35. The next day, again, John, this is John the Baptist that, that he's talking about. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned to them and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. So Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. All right, first of all, just quickly, I want you to notice that what I just read to you actually contains the marks of eyewitness testimony, not of once upon a time there was this guy who went in this mythical land and blah, blah, blah. It is grounded in real locations at real times. John says the very next day they did this. To us, eyewitness testimony in 21st century America sounds, would have sounded like Jesus walked into town at 4 o'clock on a Friday, and you could see the sweat going down his brow, and he was wearing white, and he was like, we would have that kind of detail if you wrote that story today, right? But in the ancient world, you didn't write that kind of thing at all. It's actually really remarkable the level of detail that John gives in this account, in the ancient world, think about like Oedipus and, and Homer and, and all of these things, Greek writings. They don't, they're, they're sort of like once upon a time-ish. This doesn't read this way. It reads like eyewitness accounts. And John is trying to let you know this actually happened at this time in, in this place. We saw it and we want you to know. I, I'm trying to relay to you not a, not a fairy tale. I'm, I'm not pulling this stuff out of the air. I'm trying to relay to you exactly how this went down. So, he, he tells us that, and then, and then you see this invitation that Jesus makes. A guy named Andrew goes up to, to follow after Jesus, and Jesus says to him, hey, I want you to, to come and see. So number one, I just want you to see this. Come and see is an invitation to come and experience and explore. The, Andrew walks up to Jesus. Jesus turns to him, and he says, what are you seeking? Which is another way of saying, what do you want, right? And then, and then Andrew responds, oh, where are you staying? And then he's like, come and see, come and follow me. It's not an invitation just to merely walk with me and, and put your eyeballs on it. It's not just a head thing. Oh, come and know some information. It is a heart thing. Come and experience this whole thing. Walk with me. Get into it. I could tell you where I'm staying, but I want you to come see the whole thing play out. Jesus goes after the heart. This is why he asks Andrew when he walks up to him. is why he says to him, what do you want? He doesn't ask him, what do you know? What do you believe? How Jewish are you? Do you keep all the laws? Are you super religious? What did your parents teach you? He doesn't get into any of that. That's all head stuff, right? He goes into, what do you actually want? Because let's talk about that, because that's really where the change and the growth and the transformation happens at the level of the heart and the desire and the wills, not just at the level of, of the brain. When I preach here at this church, I don't know what you think I'm doing, <laughs> But what, here's what I think I'm doing. 
I'm, I'm not trying to just pass on information to your heads so that you walk out of here and go, that was interesting. Oh, that was a thing. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. What are you going to have for lunch? You know, like, that's not what we're doing here. My goal when I, when I teach here is, is not just to inform your head, but to motivate and inspire and, 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 mo- and, and move in your heart and, and actually have that translate to action, hands and feet, that you will do something with what we're talking about in here. So it's, it's a whole body experience. It's supposed to be head, heart, hands, and feet. Like you're doing something with what you've learned. You're not just learning something and then to say that's interesting. That's what we're trying to do when me or any one of us teach on this stage. But more than that, this entire experience is aimed at the whole person. When you sing, the songs we sang this morning, many of them today about the love of God, the lyrics that are there are chosen for a reason. They're chosen so we will connect with those ideas. And, and there's something about words and melody. Like if I could sing this whole sermon to you, that'd be super impressive. I cannot. But if I could, and, and, and I could make it really hooky, you might, you might like, oh, I remember that thing you said because you kept singing it over and over. Well, the worship songs that we sing together corporately are designed for that. Even a song we sang last week, I'm No Longer a Slave to Fear. Remember that? Do you guys know that song? We sang that last Sunday. And I can't tell you, like, that, those words come up to me in, come up in my head at times when I'm freaking out on Monday through Saturday, you know, when I'm having a good freak out. It's like, oh, wait a second. I'm No Longer a Slave to Fear. This is like a song, and I kind of sing it in my head. Um, that's the value. That's why we do some of that. It's why we take communion. Communion is bread and juice. It represents body and blood. It is tactile. You have to get up and go get it. You have to get up and receive that communion and, and, and tear that bread and, and, and ingest it, and it goes down inside of you. That's because this is not something you come and watch. This experience that we have in here together is not a show. It is corporate worship. We're doing this together. We're, we're participating in this thing. It's, it's experience and explore the thing, not just watch it, and learn about it. Because we believe that's where transformation comes. Transformation comes when we give all of us to, to, to Christ, when we give head, heart, hands, and feet. When we give all of that to him, that's where the transformation comes. And I believe God wants to transform all of us, and he wants to transform all of us. And so that's what, we're, that's what we're doing here. And his invitation is for all of us. Come and see, examine this thing, poke and prod, find out if it's true. And if you're a skeptic here today, or maybe someone invited you to church for the first time, you're like, here's what I would challenge you to do. Come back more than once. Don't just check off a box, yeah, I went because my friend invited me and that's it. Come back, poke, prod, find out who we are, get to know some people, see if it's real. See if this God thing makes any difference in our lives. See if we have hope. Um, See how it changes us. So, Andrew comes to Jesus. Jesus says, all right, come, come and see. And so how does Andrew respond? Look again, back at verse 41. Andrew, he first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Andrew's like, huh, who do I know that could also know, would benefit from hearing about Jesus? Oh, my brother Peter, I'm gonna go talk to him. And he goes and talks to him. Now we don't have like the long version probably of the conversation. We don't know how that goes down. He goes to his brother and he's like, hey, um, hey bro, do you remember, do you know how like um, we've been waiting for a savior for our people for like a millennia? Yeah, yeah, I know. 
Well, do you know, do you know how like uh, there's prophecies about that, that saying that there's going to be a savior that's going to come one day, the Messiah, this one's going to deliver our people? Yeah, yeah, I know. Do you know how we're living under the boot of the Roman Empire right now and it kind of sucks? Yep, I know, I know, yeah, it's awful. Well, um, I just found the guy. The guy we've been waiting for, I've found him. You, you gotta come check this out. And he just brings his brother, Simon, to Jesus. And Jesus um, changes and, 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 and really does some work with, with Peter. Um, Jesus actually looks at Peter and gives him a name change. He goes from Simon to Peter or Cephas, right? And the name change, all the commentators will tell you this about this. This isn't just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a different name, and isn't that interesting? But it, it's really more of an identity thing. It goes deeper than just a name. Jesus looks at him and says, I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock, like the solid rock idea. And I don't know if Peter up until that point in his life had been a solid rock, Maybe Jesus just kind of saw that in Peter. He's like, this guy's faithful, a faithful fisherman. He shows up on time. He does his work. He handles his business. He is solid. I don't know. But he does look at him and say, you're going to be a solid rock. That's what we're going to call you. And, and, and I'm going to work with that. We're going to build something off of that. And there's something about being told who you are and then challenged to live into it that is transformative. There's something about Peter, be, someone coming to Peter, Jesus coming to Peter and saying, or to Simon and saying, no, you're this. I see it in you. I believe in you. I see greatness in you. Step up to it. Become it. Become who I believe you can be. And it's, it's, it's powerful. Um, so Jesus sees that in him and he, and, he, and he changes him. Peter's transformation does not begin with him setting some vision and goals for the year. I'm a big fan of that. But that's not where it starts for Peter. It starts with an identity change that only God can really give you. So he's changed, and you, and you can follow the arc of Peter's life from, from that point forward. But I want to point you to one thing. Peter wrote two letters in the New Testament. You see them later on in the New Testament. And these were written years later from this, from this account. So maybe... 30 years later, Peter's an old guy, and he's writing to the church. And listen, um, I, I want you to hear uh, about the transformation. I want you to hear how he is, is, uh, is changed because uh, the come and see isn't just, isn't just an invitation to come and experience and explore. Come and see is an invitation to be changed. And I want you to hear how Peter talks about who we are, the identity that we have in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Listen to this. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you, why? Why, why are you chosen by God? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love that text. Peter's talking to the church and he says, and this could be to, to you today as well. And Peter says, man, you guys are chosen. You're God's people. You're royalty. You don't even think of that way. You don't, you don't think of yourself as a king or queen. You're royalty. And, and God chose you for a reason. He has a purpose for this. That you may proclaim, that you're going to speak up, that you will pay it forward. He chose you not so you can just be so awesome, but that you will pay it forward, that you will reach out to other people and, and tell them about God's love. You receive it and, and you 
let others know about it. That might involve speaking up and, and telling people about God's love. It may also involve actions. A lot of people are like, I don't want to speak up about my faith. I'm just going to show people my faith by how I live. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. How about you show your faith by how you live, and then you also take the opportunity when it comes up to speak up about who you are and, and, and why, why you are. And when you speak up, it doesn't have to be complicated. Listen to what happens next in John chapter 1. The next day, is verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So here's another guy in the progression here, and another guy, Philip, he starts following Jesus, and he goes and he finds his friend Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, this is the guy we've been waiting for. We've found him. He's from Nazareth. And I love this, because Nathaniel is like your skeptical coworker, right? That guy, he's like your uncle who sends you the forwards on email, He's like, a, he's like that guy at work who just, just knows better than you. He's like that lady at work who's just got some edge to her, you know, whatever. Like, he's a friend at school. Nathaniel's just skeptical. Come on. So Philip says, no, I found the dude we've been waiting for. And Nathaniel's like, really? From Nazareth? Like the little, little cow town over there? Like that's, like the guy we've been waiting for is from Nazareth? And Philip doesn't go, oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, that is, that, like, why would our Savior come from such a dinky little place? Philip doesn't say that. Philip could maybe say, well, no, our, our Savior should come from Nazareth. In fact, let me, take you, uh, let, let me take you back to Isaiah chapter 11 where it talks about the new shoots. And, and the word new shoots is Netzorim. And Netzorim are the, are the tribe, the people who come back from exile. And they land in Bethlehem and they start their own town. The Netzorim start Nazareth, that town. So really the new shoot that's going to come up from Isaiah chapter 11 should be uh, from Nazareth. He could do that. Like, I know 700 years ago they wrote this, but listen, this is, the, this is the thing. But he doesn't do that. You can look that up later. What I just told you is true. <laughs> but here's the point. You don't have to know it. You don't have to know it to be able to say to someone, yo, I, I, I actually can't answer all your questions. I know you're skeptical, and I know God, and, or you don't like organized religion or whatever. Um, I, I, I just want you to come and see. I just want you to come and see what, what God's doing here. He, he doesn't say, uh, you know, he, he, Philip doesn't say to Nathaniel, uh, man, you've been reading too many Sam Harris books, bro. You're just so jaded about the Christian nation and, and skepticism and you just don't like God. And let me give you the ontological argument for the existence of God. Or here's the teleological argument and I've, you know, got this figured out. And let me give you sort of the classic apologetics so I can teach you the things so that you know and I can answer all your questions. And he doesn't say like, hey, Nathaniel, I'm sorry that you and your family were burned by the synagogue when you're young and now you hate God and you hate religion. But don't do any of that. He's got, as far as we know, he's got exactly zero answers for Nathaniel except, would you come and see this? Would you just look into it? Would you just check it out? Because it's changed me. And I think it could change you. I think there's actually something of real substance here in this thing. And so our faith 
like Philip, like Andrew, our faith is meant to be shared. It's meant to be passed on. And you don't have to do it with fancy words. You don't have to have all the answers to all the questions. But you can just say, hey, come and see. Just come check this out. So let me give you some context for that, and then we'll wrap up. Number one, I want to challenge you to share your faith in your own house. Now, if you're single and you have a roommate, there's a space you can do this. If you're married, spouse. You have children, do it there. But whatever your living situation is, share your faith with those people who are close to you and that are in proximity with you. Speak up about your faith. I, I do this in my home as I can. I have a wife, three kids, and my kids have the misfortune, I think, of growing up in the preacher's house. And I don't know if you've known other preacher's kids, but that doesn't always end well. Like sometimes that goes off the rails real quick, right? And, and I think it probably goes off the rails because they see an incredible difference between a person who's talking on stage for a couple minutes and the person that they have to live with every single day. And I'm, it's, it's a little bit of an exaggeration to say I'm haunted by this, but I am concerned, right? And, and, I, and I do want to be... Um, I do want to be something. And, and here's the challenge, man. I, I write this message, and this is 30 minutes out of 168 hours of the week. And I, pr- I pray over this. I read the scriptures. I talk to God about this. I write out every word that I'm going to say to you, except the bad jokes that come off the cuff. Those aren't often written. Uh, I write out what I'm going to say to you, and you guys hear it, and you get my best 30 minutes out of the week. And then I have 167 and a half hours where I'm pretty regular. And, and don't write out all my words and then say ones I regret, and sin, and blow it, and I do that in front of my family, and, and maybe the best thing I can do is not preach another sermon, because they hear my sermon, they sit in here also, they hear the sermons, that's not what is needed. What is needed is uh, me asking for forgiveness when I blow it, being honest, me depending on God for his grace, and showing them what that looks like, and, and, and being real with them, um, and I feel that more and more, as they get older and older, if they're two years old, I can be like, just go to your room. Like, what, like you're not old enough. Let me carry you there. Like, drag you there. Like, just stop. But as they get older, it's like, they can tell what you're doing. They know who you are. And so I have to live out my faith and make it real at home. This is true if you're married, single. If you've got people in close proximity to you, live out your faith in front of them. With my kids, I pray with them. We sing sometimes. We read together. Um, we have conversations about stuff that matters. Because, um, and let me say to parents here directly, um, you have a calling to help your children have faith in Jesus and to know him and to be disciples. And your children will see your faith lived out in your words and in your actions. Your faith is taught at home and it is caught at home. And they will see it in how you prioritize. And if you tell your kids, God matters, our faith in Jesus matters, our prayers matter, if all these things matter, and then in the way you actually live your life, it's completely opposite of that. If, if Sunday rolls around, you're like, oh, we're too tired, let's not go today, I don't want to be with the church. Or if you say, hey, God matters, our faith matters, Jesus is the most important thing in our lives, but you are on a soccer team and you play 20 games on a Sunday, we're just going to go do all those. If you do that, if you, if, if, if you do that, they're going to see what matters to you. They're going to know what you get most excited about. They're going to see what, where the value is for you. Um, your faith is taught at home, but it's also caught at home. And, and parents, um, one more thing on parents, and then I'll get off the parent thing, because I know not everybody in this room is a parent. Uh, parents, um, y- you have an incredible opportunity here 
And it's awesome. It's amazing that God gave you children in your home to, to shepherd their hearts. You do not own them. That's a hard thing because we say, oh, my kids, they're not yours. I mean, technically they're yours, but I mean, like, they're God's. They belong to him. And they will belong to him long after you're gone. And so our responsibility is to be ambassadors for, for God in our own homes to our children. And very practically, if, if your kids say to you, man, I don't want to go to church today. I don't, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to youth group. I don't want to be involved. You know, because maybe you'll, maybe you'll experience that in your home at some point. Um, what, do you, what do you do with that then when they say that? Are you going to say, ah, you don't have to go. Ah, it's not that important. And let me ask you, do you do that about everything else? When your kids say, um, you know what, I don't want to eat, eat vegetables. I prefer candy. And so we're just, I want candy tonight for dinner. And you're, what do you do? Because you love your kids. You say, no, candy's not good for you. I'm older and wiser than you, and I know you need vegetables. I know how the body works. You don't understand it. I know you love candy. You can't have it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Sorry. You just can't. Why do you do that? Because you love them, right? And you, and you believe that, and you want to pass that on to them. If your kids come to you and they're like, uh, Dad, Mom, I hate math. And so I want to not math anymore. No more math. And you're like, what do you do at that point? They're like, I, I, I don't even want to go to the math class anymore. I'm just not going to do it. In fourth grade, let's say. I'm just not going to do math anymore. I don't want to do it. What do you do? Do you say, I also hate math, <laughs> right? I'm an adult. I still can't find X. Don't know where X is. Never found it. Where's X? Not sure. Who cares? And, oh, you're right. And, and, or you say, the, honestly, I've never used algebra in my adult life. I don't know why you have to learn it either. Or, no, you say... I don't care if you don't like math. You have to learn math. It's part of school. You're going to, you need to hate it too. Uh, whatever. Like you say, you need to learn it also because you value their education. And, then, and so you say, I'm going to force you to do this whether you like it or not. And why is that different with our faith? Why are we like, I'm not going to force my church on my kids? Really? If you value your faith and living it out, of course you would say, hey, you're in my house. This is what we're going to do. Because the things that you value, you, you want to pass on. And, and you wouldn't accept that in, in another area. Why, why would you accept it here? All right. I'll, I'll stop on that. So number one, share your faith at home. Whoever's around. Number two, share your faith outside of the home. School. Work when the opportunity comes up. On your sports team. And you're, you're in a book club. Different environments that you're in. Share, share your faith there. Speak up. And, and because you are surrounded with Nathaniel's. You are surrounded with people that God loves. Every one of them. Every person you know is someone God loves. You may not love them a whole lot sometimes, but God loves them and wants to be in a relationship with them. And a lot of them are skeptics, like Nathaniel. I'm like, I don't know. You are surrounded by those. And there's something in our culture, in America, in the 21st century, that skepticism is just the jam, isn't it? It is the hot business right now. Be skeptical of everything. Don't believe anything. Question everything. If you're not skeptical, if you're not cynical, you're, if you're not paying attention, and skepticism's great. It, it's great until it isn't. It's, it, it works until it doesn't. One day you wake up and you go, there's, there's no end to this road of skepticism and cynicism. And, 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 there's no end to everything is awful. It doesn't end well, let's say. And so you have an opportunity to say, like, yeah, I know we're skeptical. I know there's challenges. I know the church is not perfect. I know that God did is this thing and you, you have a lot of questions and whatever. But, like, just come and see. Like, just come give it a shot. I got a 
I knew a guy years ago who ran in a really good campus ministry at, at Georgia Tech. And um, I asked him one time, I said, where do you see like the most people becoming Christians when they come to Georgia Tech and go to your campus ministry? Where, when do you see that happening? And he said, oh, that's easy. It's when they're juniors. I'm like, why college juniors? Why are they coming to Christ? And he goes, well, they come in as freshmen and they like get into this, they're like away from their parents. They come as freshmen, they get into the party scene and they're like, oh, there's parties, so much freedom, we're gonna do everything. And so they, they go do everything for like a year and they're like this and then the spring term, we're gonna do this and it's gonna be awesome. And they do all that for a year and they don't, they don't care about God, they're not interested right now, they're not thinking about that. And then their sophomore year comes and they're like, hey, I'm, I know, I know where the parties are, I know what's happening, we did it last year, it's gonna be awesome, we're gonna do it again this year. And so they kind of run the whole circuit again in their sophomore year, party, this is amazing, we're having so much fun. And by their junior year, comes, they go to school, and come back to school for their junior year, and they go, I don't really want to do that again. I'm like, I'm, o- I'm over it. Are we going to do that one more time? And for a lot of them, he goes, that's when they start asking the questions of like, what, is there, is there something else? Is this really all, all this is? And that's when a lot of them come to Christ. And for a lot of people, and maybe people that you know, there's a lot of people that are still kind of in their freshman and sophomore year, but they're like 30 and 40, right? You know people like that? Or let's be honest, have you ever, are, are you people like that? Are you still in that like, oh, it's just, everything's just a big party, whatever, I'm not gonna ask the questions about knowing and, and purpose and meaning, and all. Oh, let's just, let's not do that, this is just fun, we're just gonna, I'm just gonna have fun. No, man, maybe you get to the end of that and you go, is there more to this? Is there any value in this God thing? What do we actually do? What are we doing here? And man, if you're, if you're still there, like if you're still in that, in some ways, if you feel like you're still in that freshman, sophomore year of life, man, it's okay. Like we've all sinned. We've all blown it. God's grace is there for us. And by his grace, by his love for us, we are changed and transformed. But you are surrounded by people that are Nathaniels. You're surrounded by people who are skeptics. And here's the, the last truth I want to give you. The truth is, you were a Nathaniel at one point. You were. I was Nathaniel at age 11. My parents got a divorce. I started going to a church, me and my single mom and my brother. And people in that church took an interest in me. And they loved me. And they taught me. And they challenged me. A middle school kid. They challenged me and called me to be something. And I never thought it was going to end here. I didn't think I was going to be a pastor in a church and doing that whole thing. I, I didn't know. I just knew that there were some people who loved me and they pointed me to something greater. I was a Nathaniel. I was skeptical. They, the people who knew me back then would tell you. I, I had all the questions. All the questions. Christus doesn't stop with questions. I was skeptical. I get it. And, and, you're, and you were a Nathaniel. If you're a Christian now following Jesus, you were baptized into him, you're on the road, you were a Nathaniel at one point, and somebody looked at you, and they're like, oh, she's so skeptical. Oh, he's such a tough nut to crack. Someone said your name, and they followed it with a sentence that sounds like, if only he would figure it out. If only he would come to know God. If only the light bulb would come on for her, and she would follow after Jesus. And, and, and here you are today, and God has done work in your life. And I'm telling you, those people are all around you. So here's what I want you to do, real practically. 
Would you write down the name of three Nathaniels that you have in your life? People that you know, that you're friends with, maybe you're in town, that you're in relationship with, not someone who's like so far away you hardly ever talk to them, but someone you're in pretty regular relationship with who's a Nathaniel in your life. Will you write their name down and just say, these three I'm going to pray for in 2018? I wrote them down. I put them on the desktop of my computer so that I see them whenever I open my computer. These are three people that I'm praying for that are, that are Nathaniels in my life. Write down their name and pray for them. And maybe invite them to come and see. We're going to start a new series next week. It would be a great time to invite somebody with you. Say, we're going to do this thing. Just come hang out. Come to my small group. Just come hang out with some, these folks from church. Um, invite them to come and see. You don't have to have all the answers. Um, but you are called to, to speak up. And, and, and because you've received the love of God, you are called to pay that forward to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we have the courage to speak up, not because we have all the answers, and, 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 and I know that we feel like a hypocrite sometimes, and we're not always who we should be, and, and all of those things that we wrestle with, but God, there is love and grace from you, and you work uh, in our strengths, but also in our weaknesses. You work where we are broken, and you do your thing, and so God, I, I pray you burn into our hearts the names of maybe three people who are the Nathaniels in our lives who we want to help connect to you and give us divine appointments, opportunities to speak up about our relationship with you and why it matters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.